Welcome, everyone, to It's a Rap with Rap. I am your host, Ron Rappaport. This podcast features people who have overcome life's challenges and adversities, people who can inspire and motivate, and people who can educate us on an assortment of topics. My guest today is Gary Little Elk Ashley, and he prefers to be called by just Ash. I met Ash on my travels through South Dakota. He was my guide at the Crazy Horse Memorial Monument in the Black Hills near Custer, South Dakota. Ash is a Lakota Native American and an enrolled member of the Lower Brule Sioux Tribe. There are 573 federally recognized tribes in the United States, 400 tribes are not federally recognized. Ash is with us today to give us a perspective of what life being a Native American growing up is like and dealing with the challenges of being a Native American in today's time period and to answer questions to better our understanding of our Native American population. Welcome, Ash, to the podcast. Thank you. Good to have you here. I first start, uh, I'd like to first start off by you educating us on the distinction. I said you were Lakota, and you were also enrolled in, as, as a member of the Lower Brule Sioux Tribe. What does, what does enrollment mean? What, can you dis, what are the distinctions between those two terms, Lakota and Lower Brule Sioux Tribe? Well, there's, there's actually seven bands that make up the, uh, historically the Lakota people. Um, and uh, currently those bands are kind of scattered between the different reservations. So even though um, I have uh, Sans Arc or Sichangu uh, ancestry, our family was placed on the Lower Brule Reservation. And so we're enrolled there as Lower Brule. We married in with the tribe. So we do consider ourselves Sichangu. Sichangu is the uh, native word for uh, Brule is a French word. That's what the French call us. Okay. Okay. So Lakota, uh, I think you once described, it's like saying I'm an American. Yeah. And the Brule Sioux tribe is... It's just one of those. One of those. Yeah. Okay. Like a Southerner or a New Yorker or, you know. So right. there's there are seven bands. I can name them off if you wish, but there's seven bands that make it to our little tribe. What does the term federally recognized mean? And what are the implications of being and not being federally recognized? Well, I can answer what it means being federally recognized. Of course, I've never had any experience not being federally recognized. So I don't think it'd be fair for me to answer that question. And I'm okay. not sure. um, But <clears throat> federally recognized um, means you are a tribal member of a sovereign nation uh, of, a, um, of a tribe that's recognized by the United States. All right. As being recognized, are there, there's obviously, I think I said there was like 400 tribes that aren't recognized. Yeah, I was kind of surprised by that myself. I, I've never researched that, you know, aspect. And uh, I've known a few uh, people in my life that are uh, Native and their tribe has sold their rights. Um, basically, any anything that the uh, agreement they had with the government, they basically just got a cash settlement and everything was in that now they're just like anybody else okay non-native okay okay that makes sense what are the requirements to be classified as a tribe i can't i don't know for sure um you know being born of course with uh the lineage yeah and uh you're and there are people that are that can be enrolled that aren't and so um you're not automatically enrolled your parents have have to um, put in the paperwork for you. I see a lot of, uh, I do genealogy and I do a lot of uh, ancestry uh, or I, I work with a lot of DNA. I have people that contact me all the time. They do have Native American ancestry and they want to get enrolled. They think that the DNA is going to be enough to show that they can be enrolled, but that's not the case. You have okay. to prove lineage to that band and then, right. yeah. Okay, that makes sense. So we've had this situation with the Washington Redskins, the Cleveland Indians, and, and all this hullabaloo. What name do Native Americans prefer to be called, or does the preference uh, vary by tribe or by region? I, I would say it kind of varies. You know, we're all uh, figuring out that words matter, and uh, even I you know, use Sioux and Indian and interchangeably. Um, and 
personally, I've never heard anybody in my family or on the reservation ever talk about mascots. We have real issues and it kind of sometimes is irritating because it feels like the real issues are being washed out by things that to us don't really matter. Right. And, and would you say that's something that really doesn't matter? Yeah. But mascots don't matter to me. Yeah. I know in uh, Florida here, the Florida State Seminoles have a, a, a business arrangement with the Seminole tribe. And they said, yeah, fine. Go ahead and use, you know, use, use the Seminole chant and use the Seminole name. And they were fine with it. So they, they got that approved. Yeah. So th- there's bigger issues than that. There's a lot is, bigger issues. Yeah. Now, Ash, you were raised by your grandmother. Well, I had the very first, when my mom, she was young, and she had me still in high school. Um, my grandmother was a primary carekeeper, and we were on the Cold Creek Reservation. Oh, you were on the reservation? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Now, and when you look... My mom got married that we moved off the reservation. Okay. And then I okay. went to school in off the reservation. So what was life like for you growing up uh, in your school settings uh, from your younger years to, say, your high school years to today? Oh, it was, uh, uh, there were some rough spots. You know, it, um, I think my first memory or experience with uh, the, the school I went to, I was the only Native kid there. Yeah. And um, I really didn't understand I was Native. I remember my first experience with, feeling uncomfortable. I I don't even know how to describe it, but we went down to the gymnasium to take a class picture. And I remember the seniors were standing up because they were doing their picture. And then the little, I was probably second grade or something. And I was just so enamored looking at them and staring up and thinking, God, they're so great. You know? And I remember one of the kids was looking at me and started going, and then a bunch of them all started doing it. And of course, I didn't understand. And so I'm just standing there smiling, looking up at him. And then I remember looking around and I realized everybody was looking at me. And wow. I think the one thing that kind of got to me or kind of hurt is the teacher was laughing, you know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And, and that authority, you know, that person that and, you know, wasn't there to help. She was she was, you know, and so, yeah, it, uh, there was definitely some rough spots. Yeah, yeah something like that's. Yeah. going to stay with you for a long time, for a lifetime. It makes an impression for sure. So what about your, uh, tell us about your junior high, your high school years. Well, that's when things, usually uh, it was uh, really odd. Uh, it was usually the older classmen. Yeah. Uh, kids that were, you know, three or four years ahead of me, the, the ones that were um, doing most of the uh, ugliness. My classmates, there were just a few um, and I think they were almost kind of egged on by the older ones, but the younger classmates, the younger ones, totally different, you know, a lot more accepting, liked me, um, didn't care. I don't know why that was, but, but the upper class in a little different story. Oh yeah. 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 Of course, you know, you got to realize that I don't think racism is the same for natives. I could be wrong, but you know, when someone's trying to shame you for being native, there's always that sense of they're trying to shame you for being native in your own country. You know, it's just not yeah. quite, it's like going to Germany and going German, German, German. It's just like, okay, I know I'm German. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So getting back to reservations, what constitutes a reservation and how, how did they all become, uh, how did that all become? I, uh, a friend sent me a thing that's in a, or a, a book. I, I said, I don't know what book it's out of, but it's um, in there. It says um, Native Americans went to the reservation to uh, preserve their culture. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah, no, I don't I mean, think so. <laughs> uh, reservations were um, really just prisoner of war camps, an area to hold Natives in until they could figure out what to do. And I don't think they still figured out what to do. You know, um, There's a difference between Indian territory and a reservation. And, uh, and of course, there's no more Indian territories. But in the beginning, Western South Dakota was, uh, by treaty rights, uh, promised, the government said, look, you open up the Bozeman Trail, 
let our people through to go out west. We will um, make an agreement and make some boundaries. Basically, what is now Western South Dakota, this land is yours as long, as long as the grass is green and the sky is blue, and we will keep our people out of your land. And so we agreed to that. Yeah. And uh, then when the, uh, it was actually Sherman uh, that sent Custer into the Black Hills in 1874 on an illegal expedition to find gold. And when they found gold, the government didn't even try to keep the uh, miners out of our country. Right. And that's what that's why it's you know a lot of people don't understand that as natives most of us don't have problems with the american people you know right. most americans came here because they were looking for opportunity you can understand right. that way for that it's the uh, government that we're not real um trusting of and uh you would know we really care for really well understandable uh a lot well, of we stuff. don't have a good history but a lot a lot of a lot of promises were not kept with. I guess that we, we could put it that way, treaties, whatever, just broken. Yeah. What can you tell us about reservation life in past years and what is it like now? And can you address uh, the reservation schools and the church's uh, role in those schools? Historically or currently? Well, we can go on reservation life in past and present. And, uh, and then you can talk about the school's past and present as well um historically speaking uh, uh, just about all programs or anything that that's been done on the reservation has always had an underlining um you know it was like the relocation program uh, to really relocate the best and brightest um off the reservation so they can get better jobs and seek opportunity but and there again they took the best and brightest off the reservations you know yeah. So you look at a lot of the programs and things that have happened, and it, it's just a, a constant walk into um, trying to figure out a way to eliminate. Now, now they want to privatize, you know, reservations and stuff. And it, it, there's just a constant um, push to do away with the people and just forget this chapter in our history. I believe. Okay. Now, getting back to the reservation schools. Uh, I know the church played a role in those schools. Uh, how did that? How did that go? Um, there are places. Uh, my sister uh, works for uh, St. Joe's Indian School, and I, I've been very, very impressed with their program. Uh, and they're making great strides into teaching children how to um, manage their lives, cook clean. Um, balanced checkbooks, things like real life issues. Yeah. Um, the beginning of the boarding school era, which is what my grandmother went through and, and many generations, you had children being taken away from their parents and grandparents, being raised by people who were probably the, at the very best indifferent to them and sometimes, you know, brutal and, and uh, assaulted. Um, and these kids grew up, and the, the basic program was to... Author Philip Jones, who resides in the historic town of Shrewsbury, England, has written his play-slash-book, The Lion Hotel, there. The play is written in five acts. Combining history and humor, The Lion Hotel is written in a modern way and can be acted out or read fluently like a novel. This 16th century inn has played host to Charles Dickens twice, Charles Darwin, and King William IV. The Lion Hotel provides the setting for a story in which a detective's daughter is wrongly accused of a crime. One might have expected her father, Inspector Horace, no less, to have easily been able to prove her innocence, but things never quite work out that way when you're a teenager. Fortunately, Florence is quite capable of remaining one step ahead of her father and the hotel staff. Florence's predicament begins in her mind when she exclaims, Father, I think we're stuck. We're not supposed to be in the same section of the revolving door, and ends with her reflecting upon a set of circumstances. During their time at the hotel, the family encounters all sorts of strange behavior, including that shown by a waiter obsessed with Charles Dickens, who makes himself a suspect too. 
Philip Jones's refreshingly different writing style combines history and witty and engaging dialogue to bring the characters to life and allow the reader to imagine the whole situation unraveling in front of them. This book makes a great read and is a fantastic gift idea. Perhaps you know someone looking for a new play to act out. Available in paperback, hardcover, or ebook from Amazon or Barnes & Noble. The book's information will be listed in the podcast notes, Facebook page, and website. Make them be ashamed of being Indian. That's just straight out what they said. You know, we'll, we'll make the uh, thought of their Indian heritage as a thing of shame. And so you got a good solid three generations of kids, because we all learn how to raise children by how we were raised. Right. Children were taken out of that and raised by and raised in that kind of situation. And, you know, it was one thing I've always kind of wondered about because a lot of other cultures, history, historically and stuff that have suffered oppression and whatnot bounce back and sometimes even bounce back stronger. Uh, natives didn't. And it was, I wonder why. And it, uh, and doing my own research and stuff, it, it's the boarding school area. Taking that, taking that foundation away, because if you kept your religion, your language, your culture, you yeah. have that as a base to hang on to. Right. And being taught as a child that your parents and grandparents, everybody are stupid heathens. They were uh, devil worshippers. They were dumb. And uh, thank God we're here to uh, do something about it. Um, that had to have effect psychologically. Yeah. I remember sometimes when my when I would say something in the code or, or do and then my grandma would be, don't, don't do that. That's that's the old ways. Don't do that. You know, it was so drummed into her to let those ways go. Yeah. And let them die and let us, you know, just go on. And but you 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 obviously I know I can't be a white man. So I mean I was made, you know, quite clear from the beginning. So and if I if I'm not if I'm a native that doesn't know my culture then, then what am I? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounded like they really kind of want they wanted to stamp out your culture. Oh yeah, we'll kill the Indian, save the man. You know. Yeah. Tell us about your uncle who was slain and what happened to the perpetrator, and did that reflect how the judicial system treats? Native Americans, and has that treatment changed over the years? 63, I believe, as far as born, 64. My uncle was um, dating a, a local girl, and she had gotten into a relationship with a uh, Beverly Of course, this is the mid, uh, this, you know, the 60s in South Dakota, and it was, uh, Beverly was, uh, was uh, um, rather open about her um, sexuality, she was she was a lesbian, and but the girl that my uncle was with was messing around with her, but uh, was denying it, you know. And if she had just been honest and told my uncle, you know, um, our but she kept leading mom and saying, "Oh, there's nothing going on between me and her," and he didn't know. So basically, uh, things kind of got to, and he was none the wiser. And um, he went, they went to town, he got off work, picked her up, they went into town, and the report was is that this bear ball saw them together, and she says, I'm going to kill that Indian. And she was white, and the girl that he was with was white. She goes to her house, gets a 22, comes back, um, runs their car, um, or drives in front of their car and makes them stop comes around to 22 and she says, get out, I'm going to kill you. And when he opened the door, she shot him in the back of the head with 22 and, and killed him right there. Now that was premeditated murder by any standard. Right. She did 10 years. She was in prison for 10 years. 10 years. That's it. Yeah. You and think you know, I remember growing up, uh, seeing the, the anguish and the, the hurt when we'd go and see his grave, my uh, grandmother, who I was very close to, would just just break down and bawl, you know. And uh, I knew, I knew then, and I always known that uh, if you're native, 
email and uh, you're expendable. Has that judicial treatment changed over the years for the better? Not really, no. No, not really. Now, some native, uh, I'm sorry, some non-native people do not understand how Native Americans can have relatives that fought in the American Revolution, for example. Explain to us how you are related to Meriwether Lewis of Lewis and Clark fame and George Washington, our first president, and how that information was met when you told it to your fourth grade non-Native teacher. Oh, well, uh, we just got back from Easter break. Now, for Easter, uh, Natives, we go to the cemetery and put candy on the graves. It's this right. custom we have. And I remember my grandmother was taking me around the graves and she was showing me, this is my mom and dad, this is my grandma, this is your, my grandma and grandpa, your, and uh, I remember we walked up to this one headstone and it said, uh, Joseph DeSmith Lewis, it was 1805 to 1882, son of Meriwether. And, and there had been a Harry Thompson on Western Dakota Studies that I talked to my grandmother and some of the other family members and, and uh, put, published his research on, um, on the story that Meriwether Lewis fathered a uh, child with a Teton Sioux woman when he was coming through South Dakota. And he believed it was true. So... You know, she she was going around showing me, and 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 of course, all the thing I knew about Mary Will Lewis is that was the Lewis and Clark sign, and that was it. You know, yeah. Um, and I remember her telling me, yeah, George Washington would be your cousin because that's what Harry, the the uh, uh, professor, had told her. You know, his family tree makes you related to all these other people. So I was in school, and uh, the teacher said, "What do you guys do for Easter?" And I said, "Well." When it got to my turn, I said, we went around, put candy on the graves. And then my grandmother showed me my uh, third great grandfather, who was the son of Mary Willow Lewis and how we're, and we are cousins to George Washington, you know, and she just like, what? Oh, you, you shouldn't say that. That's, that's a lie. And I, I, you know, that I got upset, you know, sure. I was like, she was calling me. And so, um, the whole candy on the graves and uh you'd be enraged to draw it and the other kids were laughing and, and making fun of me and then they would tell other kids what i said and uh so but you know the kids that i go to school that i went to school with this was in the 70s most of them their families had actually immigrated here in 1880 or after right so none of them had any concept of even being remotely related to anybody but they got to realize that, you know, when you, I have a mixed ancestry and my mixed ancestry is not with Europeans that came to this country through Ellis Island. It's through the Europeans that came to this country through, you know, the early, early, because um, those trappers and traders and, and Lewis and Mary Lewis that came out here, they were from that old English blood, you know, and so there's nothing I can do about that. It, it is what it is. And I remember when I did my DNA and I put him in my tree and I put the whole family in my tree because I thought this is my family tree and this is how it should be. Uh, I was, didn't know that ancestry links you to other people who share the same ancestry. Or, you know, it's, it says you have a shared ancestor. And so I got contacted by this uh that's Ted St. John. He's a descendant of uh, the Lewises. And he said, you, you know, he, he said, you made a mistake because uh, Mary Lewis didn't have any children. I can see we're related because our DNA connects to each other. But he, obviously there was a mistake. And, uh, and he's a retired anthropologist. So he's well educated and stuff. And, and so I sent him the um, research that um, Western Dakota Studies had done. And he was like, holy cow, this is incredible. You know, of course, yeah. I grew up with it. And it, was, uh, it wasn't that big of a deal to me. But I remember here recently on a Facebook post, actually somebody had made the comment that, you know, everybody's talking about racism. They never saw racism in Kimball. And I was like, I know. I mean, this guy is a friend. And I, I just said, no, I, I, I know racism in Kimball. Trust me. Yeah, and what's funny is one of the I said, you know, I grew up in Kimball, 
being treated like a second class citizen and to think I've got five direct ancestors that fought in the American Revolution. And that, that doesn't matter because I'm native, you know, I am nobody. And one of the guys that actually used to uh, be ugly, one of the upperclassmen that was that used to be ugly to me all the time, made a comment of, uh, I don't understand how an Indian from the middle of South Dakota could have ancestors that fought in the American Revolution. Yeah. And I, I said, you know what? I'll link you to my tree and you can look at it yourself. But better yet, I'll link you to the DNA matches because it doesn't matter what your tree says. If your DNA isn't matching you to these families, then obviously there's a problem. Yeah. And so uh, I haven't heard anything from that, but it was kind of a, um, you know, for him, I know his family tree and yeah, it's, it's, uh, they came here from uh, Czechoslovakia looking for work because there was no opportunities there. And, and now it's like, uh, I don't know that why that he felt he had the right to, uh, put other people down, you know, or what, but yeah, just, uh, yeah, that's an interesting story. Ash, tell us how you, how you deal with, uh, the bias directed toward you and your people from, from some of the non-native population. How do you, how do you deal with that? I usually with hermit uh, humor. I was in, uh, uh, or I was in a convenience store with a friend and we were talking and I don't know if I, cut in front of this later or what exactly happened but she said uh blankety blank uh wagon burner and i heard it and um i didn't react to it um but my friend blew up and she said what what did you say to him and she just kind of sat there with this kind of smirk on her face and she goes she started going off and i said leave her alone she's an old woman leave her alone and she was didn't you hear what she said to you i said yeah i got ears i can hear it and she said, doesn't that bother you? And I said, no. And she goes, that doesn't bother you? I said, it doesn't bother me. And I turned around and looked at her and I said, look, lady, you got to get with the times, okay? Uh, yeah. We don't burn wagons anymore. We burn cars. And so <laughs> everybody that was standing around busted up laughing. Even she busted up laughing. But sometimes you just got to, you know, you can't fight ignorance with ignorance. And you just, it is what it is. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Tell our audience, Ash, what not to say to a Native American, things that would be would not be appropriate. Oh, I think one of the things that kind of gets on most Natives is when people sit and uh, it, 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 you hear all these. I mean, they're, just, they're, they're lies is what they are. You know, I, I don't know how many times I've heard from people that will say to me, well, you know, I'm Indian, too. And yeah. uh, I can be enrolled and the government tried to send me a check and I ripped it up and said, you don't need to pay me to be Indian. First of all, the government doesn't send you a check. You'll get a check for being Indian. Yeah. Uh, so this is an outright lie and you have to be enrolled, you know, to be a member of the tribe. And so it's not like, you know, that they're going to find out there. They got detectives out there and they're looking to see who's Indian and they can find them. They're going to send them money, you know, and they're going to, Oh, I don't need to be paying me to be Indian. I'm Indian anyway. You know, it's just like, shut up, stupid. You know, I know that is a lie because I know how the system works. And, uh, and then the, the, uh, registered, you know, people will say, you know, I, I can get registered as an Indian too. Now you, you register dogs in cars, you enroll as a member. <laughs> right. Right. You know, so, right. Um, so don't come up to you and, <clears throat> and say, Hey, I'm an Indian too. I have Indian yeah. blood. Well, no, I, don't, I, 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 I love listening to people talk about, um, their native that they are their native ancestry. It doesn't bother me at all. You know, as a genealogist, I love that hunt, you know? Yeah. And, but you got to remember too, natives have a different attitude than the western mindset when it comes to race first of all historically we never had a concept of race we were all the same color here we were all basically the same people yeah. europeans africans asians they knew of other people of other races and they had a concept of race so we never really developed it and so uh, a historian friend of mine was saying i don't understand these um interviews because these natives are calling these 
black soldiers, Washishu. Washishu means white man. I said, no, Washishu just means American. It doesn't really matter to them what, what American they are, whether they're black or white. They're just Americans to us. And so I was like, oh, well, now that makes sense. Why they're, and I said, yeah, they, natives just didn't really have that concept of race, especially back then. And so, um, you know, they didn't look, I mean, York, when he was on the um, expedition, was actually, uh, because of his size and strength, and was kind of favored by some of the women, you know, where, and so we didn't care, you know, I mean, skin color didn't make anything difference to us, you know. Let's discuss some funding facts pertaining to our Native American citizens that most non-Natives do not realize. Uh, is there such a thing as free housing? Um, you can apply for housing on the reservation just like you can apply for housing off the reservation. Yeah. Uh, so that program is is the same for both. Okay. Okay. And that's also, that's paid for by taxes that are collected on the reservation, just like off, you know, so, yeah. What about casino riches? Well, our casino doesn't, our casino is uh, way off interstate. We actually try to build it on the reservation, but closer to interstate, but we were blocked by the town because we couldn't uh, dump our sewer into their sewer system. Um, so our our casino doesn't make a lot of money. We don't have any mineral rights. We don't really have anything of any value. So each tribe, if let's say they got mines and lumber rights and casinos, that money that other companies are paying for their resources can then be reallocated to tribal members in any way the tribal council feels it should. So I have a friend He's Colville. As long as he lives on that reservation, he will get $1,800 a month. He doesn't get it if he lives off the reservation. I was going to say, what about taxes? Taxes? Well, taxes that are collected on the reservation are for the reservation. You know, And uh, there's always a fight between the state and the reservations that are in those states because states want to use our roads and everything else, but they don't want to pay for any maintenance or anything like that. And also, I mean, there's just, there's all sorts of constant things. They made it that all houses off the reservation now all have uh, street addresses. Before there were rural addresses, now they all have street addresses. Once all houses had street addresses off the reservation, which none of the reservation, none of the houses on the reservation have any, passed a bill saying you have to have a street address to enable to vote. So, you know, there's that little snippet that they always seem to didn't matter before, but now, now it does. Now it's a big deal. What are some of the myths non-natives have about Native Americans? Oh, I hear that we get money from. The, I hear that all the time. We get money from the government yeah. for being Indian. Just a myth. Uh, no, Not true. No, uh, fifty-five. I've never gotten any money from the government. Matter of fact, now that we've not gotten any money from the government, um, well, you know, when they discovered gold in the Black Hills. Um, in 1877, they illegally seized this land from us. Uh, the reason they did that is because um, we were killing the miners. They were trespassing, and we were killing them. The miners were screaming for protection. Um, the government couldn't legally do anything to protect them because by their own treaty rights that they made with us, this was our land. Right. So they illegally seized the land from us. We actually got our case in court in 1980. We won the case. And but and what we asked for back was our sacred sites are on federal ground. That's all we want. It's like 14 percent of the Black Hills. Um, the government offered us 106 million dollars. We refused to take the money. So then the government uh, opened an account, put our name on it. They also put the Dakota's name on it. Put that money in that account, hoping that the, the Dakota would take it. Um, so far, they've stuck with us and not touch that money. Right now it's $1.48 billion that sits in that account to this day. Uh -huh. um, and so not only do we not take any money, the government, the money the government tries to give us, we don't take, you know. Well, let's talk about the Crazy Horse uh, Memorial Monument. It's the world's largest mountain carving. It's, oh, considered, yeah. it's considered the eighth wonder of the world in progress. Just to let our audience know, it's not completed yet. 
briefly refresh our audience who Crazy Horse was and how did this carving come about? Who commissioned it? And tell us about the sculptor. Um, Henry Sandy Bear, after they did Mount Rushmore, and actually when uh, Robinson, the state historian back then, proposed to do this carving in the Black Hills, uh, he wanted Crazy Horse Sitting Bull, um, Wild Bill Hickok, these kind of Western figures to promote tourism in South Dakota. Uh, they brought Borglum in and Borglum had gotten done with the um, Stone Mountain and uh, they brought him in and he was like, no, we just need to do George Washington. That's all he wanted to do. And then later he was like, well, let's do George Washington and these other presidents. And they kind of picked them for whatever reason. Uh, so now Crazy Horse and, and um, Sitting Bull were out of the picture. And, and so Henry Standing Bear wrote Korjak. And Korjak actually worked for Borglum for a while. So that's uh, the sculptor. Yeah, Borglum of Mount Rushmore. Um, Korjak got a letter from Henry Standing Bear. And in that letter, he asked him if he could do something for us. And I think at that time, you know, one of the things was is, and even today, there is a, a fear that someday we won't be around as a people anymore, you know. And so something that we'd be remembered. And Korjak kind of wrote Henry Standing Fair back and forth. He went, um, he was in World War II. He was on the beaches of Normandy. And after that, something clicked. And he came back and decided this was something he was going to do. And so him and Henry Standyburn looked in the Black Hills to find something that was suitable to carve. He actually wanted to do something in the Tetons, but the Lakota elders insisted that it be something in the Black Hills. And I don't, I think the reason why Crazy Horse was picked, now actually Crazy Horse was a mixed blood, like myself. He had European, he's actually a distant relative. So we can see it in the DNA. His grandmother and my grandmother probably sisters, um, given the fact that they are both mixed bloods around the same time frame, 1770, 1774. Um, there's, and our honest DNA is connecting from our family to their family on Iron Cane's descendants. So, um, but, you know, Crazy Horse for us, he was a person that was uh, very quiet, never known to boast or brag, um, he never wanted to be a politician. He was a war leader. That was it. He had earned over 200 coup. Now, that's how those feathers that we have on our headdresses, that's what those come from is counting coup. He had earned uh, over 200. That's more than Sitting Bull, Gaul, and Red Cloud combined. He, uh, um, and to count coup, just to be, there's four ways to count coup. Um, take an enemy's weapon, Take an enemy captive, take a um, take a horse from inside an enemy's camp, and the reason that was considered because the horses that are tied up inside the camp at night, those are the most prized horses. Those are the best horses the tribe has. Okay, so if you can get in there at night and get that horse, then that was considered worth. And the last but not least, touching the enemy during the battle and and not killing them right now. It was so shameful to have coup counted on you. You can imagine in the middle of a firefight, next thing you know is you look up and somebody slaps you and runs off laughing. It was so shameful that guys would chase the guy that counted coup on them into the enemy's line trying to get him back. So, you know, he had earned, and most men, just keep in mind, most men in their lifetime, their goal was to earn four, to earn four, and he had earned over 200. Yet he never wore a headdress or a paha. Um, humble, humble man. A very humble man. Yeah. yeah. Now, who has been who has been funding the monument's construction? The first years of that monument was out of Korjak's own pocket. He had a dairy operation in Sawmill, and it was pretty much a one man show. I mean, he had his kids as they were growing up, but very first years it was all out of his own pocket because they didn't have any guests and. One of the things that was instilled upon him on listening to our story and our um, and how we view the government, um, he felt it would be disrespectful and wrong to take 
money from the government to do that memorial. He was, they were offered $10 million twice. And, and you can imagine, you know, working like he did, um, that would have came in handy, but twice they turned it down because he felt it would not be the right thing to do, given what Fraser was fought for and who he was. Um, can, you, can you describe to us the dimensions of the carving and, and when do you think it's going to be completed? Well, we are so dependent on our, the public because, you know, and that right there, if anything, that right there should give you an insight on in how we think as natives. Yeah. Because we would, if this is going to be done, we want it to be done by the people of this country, not by the government. Right. You know, um, so we're so dependent on our guests coming in that it depends on year to year what we get for funding. And it also depends on weather. Lightning shuts us down all the time. Uh, when I was out there, I was shut down by lightning. Yeah. And well, the, it's got, the reason it's reddish brown and not white like Mount Rushmore is because it's got a high iron content. Yeah. Which actually, it seems to be more fitting that it's a reddish brown instead of white. Also, Crazy Horse was a Thunder Dreamer. The power of a Thunder Dreamer is lightning. That's why he had a lightning bolt on his face and on his uh, horse. Um, uh. So it, there are, and what, what made it stand out? To Korjak, he said he was out there at Henny Standing Bear camping. He saw this huge thunderhead formation. He was looking at it and he looked down and saw that mountain and it just called to him and he could see Crazy Horse on his horse in that mountain. And so um, that's why he chose that site. And it, it just all fits together. You know, just it's just like it was meant to be. You know? And Crazy Horse himself said that he would return in stone. Yeah, I, I I have to tell anybody who's out in South Dakota they have to have to stop and see it for sure. How did you get involved with the Crazy Horse uh, Memorial Monument? Um, well, my my mother met Ann years ago, and Ann wanted natives from the same tribe as Crazy Horse to sell jewelry. So my mom was up there with uh, with a few other natives uh, from the same tribe selling. Um, Jewelry at Mount Rushmore, or at uh, Crazy Horse, sorry. And they just had a, a it was just such a, a good experience. And, and um, you know, just the family is, uh, they're genuine people. And I'm going to tell you what, being around them, you're not, not going to outwork a Jokowski. They are hardworking people and are driven. And so it's, it's not hard to like them, you know. Yeah. And, they, um, and they deal with a lot of stuff. You know, I mean, the, the, the normity of, it, of this, I would not want to be born in that family having that over my head. <laughs> just think about that. I mean, yeah. I mean, he was he was uh, almost 50 when he started. Then he has 10 kids. Yeah. And he just and, you know, and and once that family owned all that property there for the eventual school and university and the monument, they created a, a nonprofit organization and gave everything away. So it would be protected. So if no matter what happens in the future, the project will continue. It's like they're driven to, to see this no matter what. So they gave up millions and millions of dollars of property and, and uh, everything else to make sure that the, their father's dream continues. You know, I've never, I've never doubted the family's sincerity. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely not. Tell us about the educational opportunities, the Crazy Horse memorial foundation has started and some of its successes that as a tour guide up there i can't answer really well because um, i'm not in that department i do know that they are very focused on getting that younger generation which isn't me at 55 that younger generation to um educate them and um make you know native americans um better improve you know i mean just they're, they're trying to do what they can to to improve the situations yeah. yeah that's great what would you like to tell our non-native audience as a takeaway message concerning native americans i would say you know as a native you always have an insider's outsider's point of view when you're looking at the country 
And I'll be honest, a lot of us don't like what we're seeing with the country being divided. And, and you know, I had a, I was telling, you know, people about, you know, some of the things that the treaty violations and stuff. And he said, he was upset. And, uh, um, and he says, what can we do? And I said, you know, it's not, it's not the people. And I said, for us, we don't like what we're seeing with the country being divided with the, with the right and the left. I said, right. you know, you guys are now getting it. You know, you guys are, it's like uh, my cousin, we were watching the news and this guy was ranting on about you can't trust the government. He looked at me and says, they're just now figuring out. I said, they're figuring out. So leave it alone, leave them alone. You know, and so um, in our view, in our point of view, it's like when the people are divided, then the government runs the show. And the government has corporate in their back pocket as far as we're concerned, you know. And yeah. so we don't we don't have a good relationship with the government and we don't trust them at all. So as natives, we'd much rather see the people come together. And because when the people are together, they run the, the government. And we feel much safer and better because the average everyday American. I've never met any average everyday American that didn't hear the real history and not not only agree, but understand why, you know, we don't like them. And so um, just like the, just like the, um, the goods, the government promised that we sold land, the Dakota sold their land and the government said, we'll give you money and plows so you can be like the rest of us. When those goods came in, those Indian agents who were just cronies from Washington sold it all off, pocketed the money, and gave kickbacks to their friends in Washington. And I said, and who suffered? The Indian uprising that happened in Minnesota, who suffered? The natives and the common everyday person who profited? The Indian agents and the politicians that were getting, you know, they, they, they were fleecing the American public with yeah. taxpayer money, but nobody cared because it was with the natives, you know, that, that was happening to. But when you tell people the history and they see that and they're like, that makes sense. So that's yeah. why. And I said, yeah. And I said, so we want to see you guys united and together because we're, we're a lot, we feel a lot easier and better when people are united than when they're divided. Because you know, I told the one guy, I said, if we're right about not trusting the government, I said, maybe, maybe we're right about something else. And he said, what's that? And I said, we have a saying, the right wing and the left wing, they're all part of the same bird. It's the same bird. So right. remember, when you're arguing, you're just arguing, you know, it's just a facade for corporate. And it doesn't matter what side you're on. They'll divide you. I said, we want you guys to work it out and realize you're all Americans now. In our eyes, it don't matter if you just came off, off the boat or you've been here since 69. You're all, you're all here, you're all the same to us. And so get together, work it out. Be yeah. American. Absolutely. Let's hope that can happen. What excites you the most, Ash, going forward for your people and for you personally? I didn't hear that. What was that? What excites you most going forward for for the Lakota and I see, for, and for honestly, you personally. The people, the people that I see um, coming in to um, Crazy Horse, um, I guess I'd never really expected that or, you know, as a, the, the people that I'm talking to, I see real, genuine thirst for knowledge and wanting to know this country's history, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, I, I have people all the time, so I'm listening to to you for hours you know and so and 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 if you know there's some people in this country that says no no we can't teach history as it is because if we do that people won't won't um be proud to be american but you know um you gotta take the good and the bad and when you accept everything as it is and how it happened it, that's one thing that I, I i that i you know i'm not a christian but you know the catholic church apologized for what they did in the past they said the, the doctrine of discovery was wrong. The um, what we did to the children in boarding school was wrong, and they're and they're making an honest effort to change. 
Yeah. And I don't think they're alone in it. I think others are, are making an honest effort to change. And sometimes you just got to rip the bandage off and let it heal. Yeah. Ash, if our audience wants more information on the Crazy Horse Memorial Monument and the Native American experience, what are some good resources and contact information? Well, Crazy Horse has their own site, and I encourage people to come, see it, view it for themselves, and uh, go through the museum, look at the things there and stuff. And I said, um, and historically, you know, to me, um, well, Edwin Barnhart does a series on ancient um, North American civilization. It's on great courses. That would, if they would just show that, if everybody just watched that, so they got a basic understanding of what it was like before contact. You know, most people, you know, I have people all the time that ask me, at what point could the natives have resisted? I said, really? After first contact, we lost 95% of our population, and they believe it was just the flu. So when the Spanish showed up in the early 1500s, within three generations, we lost 95% of our population. I said, what, what country can take that kind of hit? Nobody. Yeah. I said, so the die was cast from the beginning. It doesn't mean the government had to do what they did, but that die was cast. I said, yeah. so um, there was really at no point we could have resisted, you know, people immigrating here or stopped them. I said, but uh, that doesn't mean we can't uh, look, you know, we can't do anything about the past, but um, we can look at the, um, we can look at history as it actually happened, accept it and uh, move on. I want to thank you, Ash, for uh, educating us on Native American life. Uh, many of us live in areas far away from Native Americans and, and do not have a perspective of your struggles. I wish you good health and good fortune going forward uh, for you and all your people. Uh, comments and suggestions to improve the podcast are always welcome. You can email us at it's a wrap with rap at gmail.com. Facebook, it's a wrap with rap. We have a website, it's a wrap with rap.com. You can sign up for our newsletter. Uh, we're on YouTube. It's a wrap with rap, the podcast uncut. So all the episodes are on YouTube. And we want to thank everyone for listening. Please stay safe. And for now, it's a wrap. Mm-hmm.